morning, we're returning to our new series of studies in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and in so doing, we're going to be looking at verses 7 to 10 of Ephesians 1. Now, by way of reminder, I mentioned last time that verses 3 to 14 of chapter 1 are actually one sentence in Greek, a single sentence stretching over 200 words. It's one of the richest and most amazing sentences ever written in any language, a sentence where words of praise quite literally burst out of the Apostle Paul breathlessly, words of praise to the glorious God of grace, grace that's been manifested in the manifold blessings that He's bestowed upon us in Christ. And it's these blessings that we began to look at last week. And in doing so, we considered first the blessing of the Father's eternal and undeserved love. We saw how in eternity, God the Father blessed us in Christ and that He chose us to be His own. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. That in eternity past, God the Father bound us up with His eternally beloved Son. So that in belonging to Jesus, we're now God's beloved children. Called to live to the praise of His glorious grace. Now having described the blessing of the Father's love, Paul now goes on in verses 7 to 10 to describe the blessings of the Son's redemption. Let's read what he says. Ephesians 1 Verses 7 to 10, Paul writes, in him, that is, in Christ or in the beloved, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, throughout Ephesians, Paul takes great delight in extolling God's superabundant riches. For example, in verses 18 to 19 of chapter 1, you can just sort of skim down, we see there that Paul speaks of the riches of God's glorious inheritance and the immeasurable greatness of His power. Then in chapter 2, in verses 4 to 7, he writes how God is rich in mercy, great in love, and immeasurably rich in grace. Paul loves to highlight the superabundance of God. And he did so not only because he had experienced this personally. No, he also does so because this is exactly what God had called him to do as an apostle. He says as much in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 3. When he writes, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given for what purpose? To preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Again and again, Paul rejoices in the truth that there is no lack in God. His resources are unlimited and his riches are immeasurable. And the wonder of it all 
This is the wonder of it all, that God in his immeasurable grace has directed all of his resources and all of his riches toward us. As Paul says in this passage, passage, he's lavished the riches of his grace upon us. How do we know this? How do we know he's heaped grace upon grace upon grace upon us? Well, we know because of the rich redemption that he's brought to us in Christ. Verse 7, in him, again, in the beloved, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he's lavished upon us. Now, here's the question. What is redemption? What is redemption? And I ask this because as Christians, we throw this word around a lot. We use it often. We sing about it repeatedly. But the question is, do we really know what the word redemption means? Is it a word that we truly grasp? A word that's gripped our hearts and captivated our minds? Is it a word that propels us into a life of praise? What does the word redemption mean? Well, in a general sense, it means deliverance from bondage. But Paul here isn't simply using this word generally. No, he's using it specifically. In other words, when Paul says, we have redemption, he wants us to have a particular context in mind. And that context is the exodus. That great Old Testament event when God freed Israel from their slavery in Egypt. Listen to how God himself describes this great event in Exodus 6. There he says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from your slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with acts of judgment. I'll take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The background for what Paul says in verse 7 lies in the Exodus, which means what he's telling us is that the Exodus way back then, as great as it was, was merely a foretaste for what God has accomplished for us in Christ. In Jesus, God's delivered us from burdens and bondage. The burdens and bondage not of a particular nation or a political system, but the burdens and bondage of our trespasses. That is our sin. Because at the heart of sin is trespass. Trespassing God's good instruction. Trespassing uh, the good boundary that God has set up, trespassing His good creational design for our lives. It's what we see in the beginning when Adam and Eve trans, tres, trespassed against the good boundary that God had set up of not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was a boundary meant to teach them that humanity wasn't created to live autonomously, but under God's good authority. Humanity was created to experience true life by faithfully feasting upon God and His Word. 
Put another way, humanity was created to live within the good and freeing confines of God's Word. But as we know, Adam and Eve rebelled. They trespassed the boundaries of God's Word. They trespassed against His authority in order to live autonomously. And ever since then, ever since that point, every human has continued this story of trespass of trespassing against God and His Word in order to live for self, self-rule, self-definition, self-pleasure, and self-praise. Now, what has this story of trespass brought us? Well, it hasn't brought us peace, but alienation. It hasn't brought us life, but death. It hasn't brought us freedom, Rather, it's brought us enslavement. In trespassing against God, we've been alienated from God as well as others. In trespassing, we become enslaved to sin and self. In trespassing against God, we've been thrust into a state of judgment, the judgment of death, of slowly but surely returning to the state from which we came, and that is dust. Left to ourselves, on our own, we continually live under the burdens and bondage of our trespasses. And there's nothing in us, nothing about us that can bring us redemption from this burden and bondage. More education can't, more technology can't, power and politics can't. Having the perfect family or job can't. There's nothing in this world that can bring us the redemption, the deliverance, the exodus we so desperately need. For truly on our own, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And this is the bad news of our sad condition. And if we're honest, we can't help but admit it at some level that something is seriously wrong that we feel the reality of this burden and bondage. So what then is the good news? Well, it's that God is the redeemer of the enslaved and the raiser of the dead. What we couldn't do for ourselves, Paul says, Paul has done for, God has done for us in Christ. And that's why Paul can say as he does in Colossians 1.13 that God's delivered us from the domain of darkness, the domain of trespass, and in delivering us, he's transferred us, taken us out of the domain of trespass, and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what is redemption? It's God delivering us by forgiving us. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption is forgiveness because forgiveness is deliverance. Deliverance from the penalty of sin, which is death, as well as the power of sin, so that we can begin to live a new way. In Christ, sin's burden of guilt and shame is removed. And sin's bondage to death, to the judgment of death, is destroyed. 
In Christ, we've been brought out of a state of being defined and determined by trespasses so as to be brought into a state of now belonging to God. And all because there is full forgiveness, rich redemption in Christ and in Christ alone. But that raises another question. How's God accomplished our redemption? How can the holy God forgive our heinous trespasses? Well, Paul says only through Christ's blood. Verse 7, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now, again, as with the word redemption, we Christians talk a lot about the blood of Jesus And we should and we must, for there's power in the blood, as the old hymn says. But there's a danger, and it's the danger of thoughtless overuse. So that through mindless overuse, the phrase, in him we have redemption, through his blood, no longer makes an impact upon us. It simply becomes another Christian catchphrase. And to keep this from happening in our own lives... And in our community, we have to pay attention to what Paul's doing here. And what he's doing in this amazing sentence that once again stretches from verse 3 all the way to 14 is he's setting up a tension. A tension between knowing that we are freely blessed in Jesus. Freely blessed in Jesus. But only at great cost to Jesus. In other words, God's redemption comes to us at absolutely no cost to us. It's completely free because it's all of grace. And yet these free blessings that we get to have cost Jesus everything. It cost him his life. It cost him being judged by his father as he stood in our place. It cost his blood being shed on the cross. Because the reality is only through Jesus' bloody sacrifice can we be redeemed. There is no divine forgiveness, no divine redemption apart from Jesus' sacrificial and shed blood. His precious, holy, and faithful blood given for those of us who were unfaithful. His blood alone has the power to cover our sin and cancel our sin. His power alone has the the power to satisfy divine judgment completely. The judgment we deserve for our trespasses against God and His Word, only through Jesus' blood can we be brought out in order to be brought in to a relationship with God, into life with God, our Redeemer. Our trespasses... Our violation of God's good word necessitated the violence of Christ's gory cross. Sin is so great, so awful that Almighty God himself could not grant us forgiveness by simply speaking it. Sin is so great, God could not grant us forgiveness by simply saying, I forgive you. No, the only way Almighty God can forgive our trespasses is through the bloody death of His beloved, His beloved Son. 
Here's how one author's put it. According to the Bible, the forgiveness of sins was a tremendous problem for Almighty God. I don't hesitate to assert that forgiveness of our sins is the only problem with which God has ever been confronted. The forgiveness of sins constituted such a problem that nothing but the shedding of blood could deal with it. God couldn't forgive sins merely by speaking a word. No, he could only forgive sins by the word made flesh, shedding his blood to cover and cleanse our sins. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. My friends, on the cross, the one who was full of the riches of God's redeeming grace, because he's God in the flesh, emptied himself in death so that we trespassers, we enemies of God might receive all of his riches, the riches of being forgiven and reconciled to the Father. We've been blessed in God's beloved, but only at great cost to God's beloved, who himself cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And hopefully we know the answer to Christ's agonizing question, that he was forsaken on the cross, that we might be forgiven, that he was rejected, that we might be redeemed. Jesus went through the hell of the cross so that we might be delivered from the hell we deserve. In him, we've experienced the true exodus because Jesus is the true and spotless lamb who willingly, freely, graciously shed his blood to cover all of our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins, which again is judgment and death. He shed his blood so that our lives might actually be dotted with his blood so that we can be forgiven and actually be brought into communion with God. Because the reality of redemption is not simply being forgiven. It's being forgiven, brought out, in order to be brought in to a whole new relationship with God, our Redeemer. And it's only through Jesus' blood that we can confidently proclaim there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because if you are in Christ, you are forgiven. One commentator put it this way, by his death on the cross, Christ has purchased us back for God at the cost of his own blood. He's dealt with our guilt to bring us pardon. He's overcome the cosmic forces which bound us. He died to the reign of sin that mastered us, and he's risen in triumph over all of his and our enemies. And now, by the Spirit, He leads us into the promised land of freedom in life, fellowship with God, and communion with one another. So let me ask you, as you sit here and worship this morning, do you recognize the riches of God's grace? Grace that He hasn't reluctantly given, but that He's lavished upon us undeservedly. The grace of the Father giving His beloved Son to us and the grace of the beloved Son giving Himself for us. 
If you belong to Christ, these riches of grace, these riches of redemption are yours. Not as an entitlement, but as a sheer gift of grace from beginning to end. And so the question we all have to ask is, have we opened this gift? Are we resting in this gift? That if I am in Christ, I am forgiven. I am redeemed by God and for God. And all through the sacrificial blood that Christ shed on the cross. Now, we could stop here. Time, we still got a little time, so we're not going to stop. Because there's more. There's more, as if this wasn't enough. Paul goes on in verse 9 to say that God has lavished these riches of graces upon, upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. In other words, out of the great riches of God's grace, he's not only redeemed us presently and personally, He's also richly illumined the minds of believers to grasp his own ultimate purpose and plan. Okay? He's redeemed us presently and personally. But these riches are so great that he's also illumined our minds so that we can actually begin to grasp his ultimate purpose and plan. Now, God didn't have to do that. Isn't it enough that he's redeemed us presently and purposely? Of course it's enough. But you see, God's grace is so rich that he also lavishes upon us wisdom and insight into his eternal secret concerning his ultimate plan. What's the plan? What's the plan of future cosmic redemption? Look again at what Paul says. That according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his eternal and sovereign purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The secret, the mystery that remained veiled in the Old Testament has now been unveiled in Christ. And the mystery is this, that God the Father has always intended for heaven and earth to be united under the lordship of Jesus. God's plan has always been for heaven and earth, heaven being God's space, earth being our space, to be joined together in a kind of cosmic matrimony. And in this matrimony, there was to be found wholeness, peace, life, and well-being. Not only for us humans, but for the wider creation. Heaven and earth were made for each other. And we see this in miniature in the Garden of Eden when we see God walking with Adam. But we know what happened. Trespass was committed. Sin entered in, and when sin entered, a rupture occurred between heaven and earth. We could put it this way, what God joined together in Eden, humanity in their sin separated. And as a result of this rupture, not only our lives, but the very fabric of the cosmos has been fractured and fragmented. 
Humanity was sentenced to death. Creation was subjected to decay. So that after this rupture, we make our homes in a world filled with darkness, disease, disorder, and death. We live in a world comprised of confusion and chaos. So the world no longer makes sense. It no longer makes sense personally, relationally, socially, politically, or even cosmically. As a result of sin, things are now horribly amiss. Things just don't add up. But here's the mystery. Here's the secret of the gospel that the Father whispers in his children's ears. My plan has always been to unite heaven and earth under the saving lordship of my Son. For only in my son can heaven and earth be united and function in the way I've always intended. And one day, they will be united in a beautiful cosmic redemption. And as Christians, we can be sure of this because we've already tasted of it in our own personal and present redemption. Because we've been reconciled to God now, we can be sure that heaven and earth will be reconciled then. Reconciled when Jesus returns to make all things new. We hear the same truth in Revelation 21 when the Apostle John says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Again, marriage language. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with humanity. Heaven has come down to earth, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Currently, things just don't add up. Let's be honest. Things often do not make sense. They don't work as intended. But there's a day coming when time will be filled with eternity. And when it is, all that's currently broken will be mended in Christ. This is our Father's eternal and unbreakable plan. A plan that was purposed in eternity past. A plan that's been put into motion in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. A plan that's going forward through the work of the Spirit in the lives of believers. And a plan that will be consummated in the fullness of time at Jesus' return. Jesus is the guarantee that God will not abandon this creation. He won't throw it away. He'll redeem it. One day, all wrongs will be righted. All evil will be undone. And all will be well in Christ. This is our rich Christian hope that one day in Christ and under Christ, the entire cosmos and all of history will find its full meaning and explanation because Christ himself is the alpha and the omega of all things. He's the agent as well as the goal of redemption, the redemption of our lives and the redemption of this wider creation and cosmos. And all of this is so 
Because he's the very embodiment of the super abundant riches of God and his grace and mercy. Friends, do you doubt the riches of God's grace? Do you doubt that they've been bestowed upon you? Then let me encourage you to look to the cross upon which the Lord of glory gave himself willingly and fully for you. He shed his precious cleansing blood that you might be richly redeemed, redeemed from the reign of trespass in order to be brought under the reign of God's forgiveness and love and acceptance. Do do you wonder if God really cares about you? If he really cares about this creation? then remember that Christ was ripped apart on the cross in order to bring heaven and earth together. Only in Him can what is lost be recovered, what is broken be restored, what is alienated be reconciled, and what is enslaved be redeemed. Dear friend, if you are in Christ, you are rich with God's redeeming grace. Grace that chose you, came after you, bled and died for you, conquered the grave for you, and guarantees you of a future where one day all will be right and well. And if you know you're rich in Christ, if you know that, how should you respond? Well, with wholehearted praise, a life of praise, praise to God and His glorious grace, because you see, A praise-filled life is the sign that you know you're not a pauper, but a gazillionaire, richly blessed with the inexhaustible grace of God in Christ. Are you living as a pauper or as one upon whom the grace of God has been richly lavished, lavished upon you at great cost to Christ? Because only in Christ... Are we redeemed? And only in Christ will this world, this creation, be what God always intended it to be when he returns to make all things new and right. You are rich. Live like it. Let us live like it. Let's get rid of the pauper mentality and recognize what we have in Christ. Let us pray. Father, I pray this for myself. I confess that I often live as one who forgets all that I have been given. I pray that my heart and the hearts of my brothers and sisters in this room would more and more be set upon Christ to see in Him the richness, the superabundance of Your grace and mercy. We pray this all for his sake. Amen.